Hi, everyone. Welcome to Emerging Leaders for Biodiversity, How Do I Do This? An Environmental Career Podcast. I'm Alex Legere. And I'm Candace Affleck. And we're the new hosts. Join us as we explore the wild world of environmental careers. Hear from top professionals and industry up-and-comers about their journeys and how they're making an impact in the world of biodiversity. So sit back or go for a hike and enjoy. Today's guest on the Emerging Leaders for Biodiversity, How Do I Do This podcast, is one of ELB's very own. She's our longest serving board member and also the chair of our board. She's currently at Carleton University working on her Master's of Science in Biology. Meredith was also the creator of this podcast and the host for the past four great seasons, and she's handing the reins off to us. Thanks, Meredith. We're very excited to hear from her, so let's jump right in. Meredith, would you mind stating your name and pronouns, please? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. My name is Meredith Meeker, and I go by she, her. Awesome. Thank you so much. Great. Tell us a little bit about yourself, right? It's what's the life and the like in the day of? Who are you and what do you do? Okay. Yeah. So I am currently a master of biology student and I'm working on wetlands, stormwater management ponds, and avian biodiversity. It's a very exciting project. It's near and dear to my heart. But before going back to school last September, I actually took a break from school. And I worked as a consulting ecologist for five years. And that's where I was introduced to avian monitoring and wetlands and stormwater management ponds. So it's really all tied together. And there is no typical day, which is kind of nice. As a student, you're very much your own boss. You have no boss, depending on your supervisor. Um, And you really get to choose what your priorities are. So For me, it could be, you know, depending on the time of year, it could be field work, it could be doing statistics, which it's crazy to say, but I'm actually starting to enjoy and find fun, which is hilarious (laughs) because I'm so not a math person. And I think that was the thing I was most scared about returning to school. You know, I hadn't been back to school in five years while I was consulting, but that since I was in college, it's been eight years since I was in my undergrad. So a really big gap for me, but I've been really, really enjoying it. My program is great. My supervisors are wonderful. So yeah, that's a little bit about me. Awesome, Meredith. It sounds like you've really found a topic that you're interested in and seem very passionate to learn more about. Would you mind telling us how you developed an interest in stormwater management ponds and why studying them is so important to you? Yeah, when I was working as a consulting ecologist, my role was looking at landscapes prior to development. So I would see what bird communities were there, what frogs were there, that kind of thing. And a lot of that time was spent Also looking at post-construction as well. And a lot of our developments have these things called stormwater management ponds. So you'll see them in almost every neighborhood in Southern Ontario. There's usually a big sign on it that says like, don't swim or don't go skating because they look like they'd be perfect places to do that. But please don't. They're really gross. It's where all of the sediment and toxins 
that wash off our road go so that they can get filtered out before they go back into the water. And so you would think that these built ponds would be pretty uninviting to wildlife. But in some of these new developments, they're the only wetland habitat for, could be for kilometers or, you know, the only one that's like locally available. And so they, you will find surprising amounts of wildlife at these ponds and just day in and day out monitoring them. I sort of started to wonder like, what's going on here? Are these providing a benefit or are they a trap? Are they an ecological sink? So that's why I went back to school. It was, you know, seeing a pie-billed grebe which is a hilarious marsh bird that sounds kind of like a ghost of a loon, even though loons are already ghosty. Um, and that really started my brain going and made me really want to go back to school to, to learn more about the science behind what I was doing every single day. And I think it's so important because we are continuing to build these ponds all across really North America. There's over a thousand in Southern Ontario. Last I checked, I'm in Ottawa right now. And there's over 130 here in the city alone. So it's really important to understand the impacts of that, but to even just start thinking about the broader impacts that humans have on our landscape, but also what are the opportunities to create more biodiverse cities and how can we do this more sustainably? That's a very cool story. I feel that a lot of the research comes from exposure and just those, those quick little wonders. I know the stormwater management ponds here in London are really popular for the beavers. Have you seen any uh, really cool nature sightings at any of the stormwater management ponds that you've been studying at? Yes, I went out this summer, my fieldwork. I looked at 30 different stormwater ponds and 30 similar urban natural wetlands. And I was shocked. Like there was blanding turtles in these stormwater ponds. I had a river otter swim alongside the armor stone that I was standing on monitoring these ponds. Yeah, otters, that was a new one for me in a stormwater management pond. Yeah, that's wild. And yes, beavers too. <laughs> Literally, it was wild. Yeah, but that is crazy. I've had to do point count surveys for wastewater treatment centers and then the sheer amount of birds are there and it's like absolutely sighted, disgusting looking water, but the animals seem very happy. It might be too early to say yet, but talking about just like kind of opportunities for things to show up. Have you noticed any benefits to wildlife from these systems? Like, is it a happy accident or do they seem to be drawn and flourishing from it? I'm definitely going to say that the science out there is a mixed review, depending on what family of animals you belong to. If you are a amphibian and you have very sensitive skin, Right now, the research is saying, yeah, you might get into these ponds, you might survive, but the odds of your young thriving are pretty low. But then things like odonates, so your dragonflies, your damselflies, they can also really benefit from these ponds. So definitely a mix. And birds right now, yes, we are finding some really crazy birds at these ponds, but compared, this is very preliminary. I don't have my paper out. so. You know, take this with a grain of salt. They are way underperforming natural urban wetlands of similar size and structure. So whether that's water quality or the vegetation communities or general landscape factors still have to dive into that. But I'm very excited to. And I promise I will report back my findings everywhere. You won't be able to escape them. 
<laughs> Perfect. We look forward to it. Can you tell us a little about your journey and how you got where you are today? Oh, okay. Um, so, okay, I'm going to take this further back. I'm going to take it further back. As a child, I would watch World Wildlife Fund infomercials every Sunday. Um, and just, yeah, they were not exactly <laughs> uplifting. So actually, my sister and I got banned from watching them because we would just be so upset afterwards. And I just, oh. it, it was because we just loved wildlife so much. We couldn't fathom the idea that we as humans were responsible for losing species. And so I knew from a young age I was going to work with wildlife, but I actually didn't know what the options were out there because I feel like as a kid, you think, oh, I can be a veterinarian. Like that's option. That's the only option. Or zookeeper. Veterinarian, right. zookeeper. Those are the only careers you're really exposed to. I feel like those are the two I also aim for. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> And then you get to high school and you start thinking of university. So, you know, maybe it broadens a little more and you're like, okay, I can be a professor, veterinarian or zookeeper. But I knew I could be veterinarian. I'm a little bit too soft hearted for that. I think, as I told you, I cried watching animals on TV. I don't think I would be able to handle an animal suffering in person. And I went to university and I didn't love my undergrad. I really struggled. I didn't feel like I was able to study what I wanted to or it wasn't tailored enough. And maybe it was also I didn't know what I wanted to do because I thought, well, I'm not going to be veterinarian, not going to be a zookeeper because <laughs> it's so hard to get a job as a zookeeper. And I didn't like school, so I didn't want to be a professor and stay in it. And so then I found wildlife rehabilitation, which I loved. Oh, man, I loved it. It was probably like five months of just getting to work hands-on with almost any mammal you can think of, any, any animal really in Ontario. So your fun raccoons, then also like peregrine falcons. And like, anyway, it was an extraordinary experience, but also not for the faint of heart because you are dealing with animals that are coming in not to great, not because of not great circumstances, really. And I had a little bit of an aha moment when I was there that all these animals were coming into the center because of human impacts, right? They were either hit by a car or there was fishing lines or they'd eaten poisoned bait. And so I really started to notice this human wildlife conflict that was happening every single day. And I thought, well, like maybe we could design cities better or maybe there's ways to mitigate it. And so I started on the Google, and I found this amazing program at Niagara College, Ecosystem Restoration. And it opened my eyes to so many different fields and opportunities. And that's ultimately, I met one of the professors we really clicked. He was very knowledgeable, and I ended up working for him after the program. And that was my first gig in consulting. And I loved it. And consulting is definitely something that I think gets a bad reputation sometimes, but I think it's a really awesome place to start your career because you get to work on so many different kinds of projects and get a lot of varied experience very quickly. And I feel like that experience, bringing that into my master's, bringing it into my work with ELB has been so beneficial and I feel like has given me 
like the field skills I need to be able to, you know, run my own master's research, project management skills, all time management skills. So even though I don't want to stay in consulting long-term, it was such a valuable experience and I loved the people that I got to work with. That's my journey so far. To be continued though. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, it sounds like you've been like pretty across the board in your experiences. I guess to go off that, what advice would you personally have for someone looking either to enter the field or between contracts or kind of maybe stuck how you were where the undergrad didn't quite click, but they felt they had to do it either way? Yeah, I, even though undergrad didn't click, it was still a really important foundation. I wouldn't have been able to do a postgrad certificate without it. I wouldn't be able to do my master's now without having done my undergrad. And that being said, my marks were not stellar leaving my undergrad. And so having that work experience really was what allowed me to do my master's because I could prove that, hey, I'm a different person now at 30 than I was at 21 leaving university. So I would say, you know, experience definitely counts for a lot. And if you're looking for ways to get that experience, network because if I had just known a consulting ecologist or biologist, I feel like I would have known so much more about this world. Conservation authorities are such, they have such great resources and they're all over Ontario. So see what's going on at your local one. Even if you'd go out for just a planting day, yeah, having a planting day might not make you the most hireable person in one day, but it will allow you to have conversations with people who have been hired. So I think that's really important to think about, like, where are the people and go there. Conferences are another great one, though they can be a little intimidating, but a lot of conferences need volunteers. And then you get to be the person who's on the work side of things and you get to help people and you're already bringing value to them. So I think that there's a lot of great ways to get into the field. Just go where the people are. I guess I should also mention, I didn't include this in my journey, but also important, the first consulting firm that I worked for, the ecology department got shut down and I was laid off three years into my career. And I thought, hey, this is it. I'm never going to work as an ecologist again. It was a really tough job market and I was really disheartened, but, you know, was able to find a contract. And when that contract was running up, I was like, oh, no, I'm not going to be an ecologist again. I'm done in the field. And actually through my connections with ELB and the people I knew and my network, another consulting role came up and I was working as a biologist. So it's really hard to when you're in those tough moments to know that you're going to get through them, even now looking, I'm half over halfway through my master's, hopefully only six months left. And there's already like a little bit of me that's scared that my journey as a biologist is over again. I mean, that's a bit of an exaggeration. I'm very happy with the network and experience that I felt, but there is a little bit of a fear because we are so passionate about what we're doing that we're afraid that we're not going to be able to continue to do it, but you can find a way. Yeah, it always seems to kind of find a way and work out in the end. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it always seems like there's just random connections, always things out there one way or another. 
it looks so much more streamlined when you're looking back. It's when you're actually in it, that things seem all over the place and you don't know what bounce is going to lead where, but stick with it. It's yeah. worth it. Yeah. Most definitely. And it's so hard to see that from the other side. <laughs> I feel like we've all been in that zero to a hundred panic moment. We're like, oh, my contract is ending. Now, what do I do with my life? Mm-hmm. This is the end. <laughs> yeah. And, and there is nothing like there. There's no shame in working outside of this field between contracts like serving or retail or I worked at Mountain Equipment Co-op and you know what? I still have a lot of great field gear from those days. So, like, you know, there's there's no shame in it. On the flip side, or what I've heard called the crap sandwich, there are obviously great parts to doing your master's and some less great parts. What are some of those tricky, hard-to-handle moments you've went through so far? Yeah, and it's... I think a really common one is honestly just battling with imposter syndrome you know I didn't do well in university so it's like do I do I belong here am I smart enough to be doing this am I doing real science luckily you know having quite a bit of work experience behind me I've been able to mostly keep that in check so I think other than that the hardest part is not knowing, for me, is not knowing what comes next, right? Like this project is completely, and by me, my supervisor provides a lot of guidance, but there's nobody telling me what to do. So you have to be pretty self-motivated and pretty sure of what direction you want to go in to do it. And on top of that, like there's a lot of computer time. And so it might not be exactly what you expect. It's a lot more school than, you know, fun research out in the wetlands type work. It's a lot more Googling error codes for the latest programming error that I've gotten. And my supervisor has told me that I'm really good at finding unique error codes that he's never seen before. So there's a lot of of Googling. You haven't fallen in love with R yet? it's, It's a slow burn. (laughs) <laughs> I am starting to fall in love with R. Like I just completed my first occupancy model. So that was a rush. Like seeing numbers fit out, you're like, oh my gosh, did I do science? Yeah, it's the exciting part, but it's also the tough part because you've done all this great work. You want it to mean something. And that means getting it on paper. <laughs> I've heard that R eventually grows on you. I'm glad you guys are becoming friends. <laughs> um, I know you mentioned the sad WWF commercials previously, but were there any other memberships or experiences that helped spark your love for nature? Sure. Hopefully something a bit more fun than WWF commercials and Sarah McLaughlin ads. Yes, I mean... We didn't watch that much TV, so TV was not the primary way that I got into it. I will say that, you know, I'm very privileged. My parents were super supportive of me and my siblings all getting time outside. And we have a cottage up north and 
they would literally from it felt like June to August be like, go be free, go find bugs, go find garter snakes, much to my grandmother's dismay when we would bring garter (laughs) snakes back. So I think those experiences were were really, really valuable. And then also I got to go to camp and go on canoe trips. So I think exposure is definitely a, a big part, but it was also just finding other people who were excited about it as well. And people who are willing to to go on adventures with you and look at those bugs and look at those trees. And yeah, that's kind of where, where I found my love of nature. That's great. It sounds like you spent a lot of time out in nature as a kid. So fun. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. I struggled and gone through the motions in school and in careers and all that fun stuff. What advice would you give yourself if you could go back and, and talk to the younger you? I was actually thinking about this the other day, about how I almost needed to pinch myself to be like, oh my gosh, you're doing your master's. There was a really long time where I didn't think that I would even be accepted, that I feel so lucky that I actually get to do this now. But if I were to go back and tell seven-year-old Meredith, like, hey, I'm doing a master's and I'm researching birds, she would be like, duh. That's what you always wanted to do. What do you mean you were thinking that you wouldn't be able to do it? And I think, you know, sometimes you just need to have that belief in yourself that you you did when you were a kid, when you thought you could be a mermaid or a (laughs) zookeeper. Like those dreams are are achievable. There are a lot of hard work and seven-year-old Meredith didn't know about statistics. But, (laughs) you know, she... She knew what she wanted to do and she wanted to make a difference for wildlife and trying to keep that as a North Star now and making sure that seven-year-old Meredith would be proud of 31-year-old Meredith. It's a little bit of a struggle and sometimes a compromise, but I think that would be the piece of advice I'd give myself now is listen to seven-year-old Meredith. (laughs) Yeah, definitely though. I think we all struggle though with that kind of imposter syndrome to degree where you submit your work or something like, do I know? what I'm doing because this like you said like is this science have I done science or am I just looking at birds and hiking yeah and I think honestly have I done science like that question am I a scientist is a whole other topic and a whole other podcast about how we think of science and how we think of scientists and how they we almost don't see them as people because they're like the names on a paper and we forget well even though they're smart and have 500 publications or whatever they're they probably watch the same crappy tv shows that we all do and have questioned at one point what they're doing and we just don't get to see that side of thing in science because we're so worried about being you know objective and science unfortunately is very little room for vulnerability at this point Okay, so in contracts you've had, and maybe obviously a bit less applicable master's, when you've applied for consulting, seminar, wherever it was you were in the past, do you stick to a strict one-page couple letter rule? Do you have any kind of like application advice? We've all been in those stages where you're just firing applications into the void and hoping you get a bite. Oh, let me tell you, I see this coming in my near future, the cover letter resume game. And I'm not looking forward to it, but I think, yes, being able to write concisely is a huge skill. So if you can keep it to one page, amazing. 
But at the same time, if it is a three-page job description and you need to talk about how you meet every single one of those criteria, yeah, maybe it won't be just one page. And the other thing that I think that I've noticed is that your cover letter is your opportunity to showcase you, you know, show show your personality. It shouldn't read like an extended version of your resume. And I think when you get into that side, then you can probably trim a lot of things down. But if it's everything's relevant, it's you're addressing what's in the job description and you're addressing why you want the job in the same kind of tone, then I think as long as keep it as concise as it can be, but one page. Oh, definitely good advice. I know that's something I struggle with. So when I first listened to the podcast a couple of years ago, I think one of your very first guests, I think it's Hazel Wheeler. I listened to that episode and she's like, oh, if it's like past two pages or one half pages, I won't look at it. And I looked at my three page cover letter and I was like, maybe this is a bit much. And yeah, I've since three gone pages back is, is stretching. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was pushing, pushing it. I've since condensed it. Especially like it also depends on what stage you are at in your career too, right? Like don't be filling space just to fill space because you think it'll make you look better. Um, mm. Sometimes you can leave some stuff unsaid. Awesome. Yeah, sometimes it's better to be short and sweet. Meredith, in your opinion, it, do you think that a master's degree is necessary to further your career in the environmental field? We talked about why I was interested in the master's that I'm doing. But the other thing that I did notice is it's a very competitive job market out there. And if you want to work in government at a certain level, there's screening tools. And I found that I couldn't get through the screening without having a master's. And I actually talked to somebody at the Canadian Wildlife Service and they more or less said, you need one if you want to work here which was one of the things that did spur me to go back to school because as much as I was enjoying consulting, I wanted to expand my, I guess, what I, areas that I could work in. And to do that, I did feel like I needed a master's, but I had a very strong why for going back. If I wanted to stay in consulting, I don't think I would have needed to go back into my master's. Right. That makes total sense. It definitely just depends what direction you're headed in your career and where you want to end up. And I think it's just really important to to have your why for your master's. And if it's because you're having trouble finding a job, yeah, master's can definitely help open doors, but it's not a golden ticket either. And so you could spend two years, like also master's are not inexpensive and going from working in as a full-time ecologist to student is a difficult transition, totally worthwhile. But if I'm just having trouble getting my foot in the door, I could spend two years really nose to the ground, networking, volunteering, saving money while working another job. Like there are, there are other ways to do it than to get a master's. So I think you need to explore why you think the master's is that missing piece. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, I think it just depends what direction you ultimately 
want to go in the New York career. So going off, I guess, kind of in the field, you saw the pie build grade, you saw some landing turtles. What is the strangest or wildest thing you found in the field? Maybe you found a species, you're like, why are you here? Maybe you found a body. Who's to say? I was going to say, I've never seen a body. I was shot at in the field once. That was not fun. That was probably like my wildest in the field moment that I've had. Like by uh, accident? Yeah, there was an irresponsible hunter who was out at dusk uh, shooting geese. And we were supposed to be mist netting bats. And our night had to get canceled, which was really too bad. And we had to call the OPP. But nobody got hurt. So happy ending to that story. Good. Uh, yeah. Yes. Well, I, I think one of my like favorite field finds was I was working on a new project and I was looking at a wetland and I was there to look for frogs and all of a sudden I saw this weird thing swimming and I couldn't tell if it was like a little piece of floating vegetation or not and then I realized that it was a newt and then as soon as I saw that newt I started seeing all the other newts in the pond and so it was like a breeding vernal pool for newts and that was just so cool because I'd never seen one and they really look like little mini dragons that are just like floating around <laughs> and so that was probably one of the more fun things that i found in the field that's amazing vernal yeah, pools are so so cool <laughs> oh my gosh yes i was gonna say i love birds but if i wasn't doing birds i'd probably be doing like well i was gonna say reptiles and amphibians that's a really large group so i don't know it's just i i love nature i love animals i'm pretty much happy as long as i get to to be out working with outdoors with animals I feel a lot of us are the exact same way it's really hard to narrow it down and be like that thing that's what i'm gonna dedicate my life to i don't think i could ever choose any one thing yeah and yet there are some people who they're like you know what i am in love with this very specific dragonfly and i want to know everything about it you know like you have your your generalists and you have your experts and you know what Whatever makes you happy. Whatever floats your boat. Awesome. What advice do you have for someone wanting to make their application stand out? Yes. So I'm very fortunate that I get really great advice from my partner who works outside of the environmental field. And so I get to hear lots of tips and tricks about what's the newest trend in, in sales and in tech. And usually that's things that haven't translated over into um, the environmental field yet. So it can be a great way to make it stand out because not that many people are doing it. Right now, the best piece of advice that I have is try and make a portfolio of what you've been done. It goes along that whole line of show, don't tell. A lot of applications, you know, they're through email. So you can include a link and explain in one sentence what you're including and why you're including it. So photos, what is it? One photo's worth a thousand words type thing. So I could tell you all day that I have experience doing wetland surveys, but here's a photo of me in the middle of June in cattails above my head with all my gear and my recording units and... You know, so that can really help paint the picture. Or if you're in restoration, here is the aerial photography of 
my site and how it developed over the course of the four month contract that I worked on it, right? Like here it is pre-planting, post-planting. Here's the map of all the sites that I've studied across Ontario to show, you know, I mean, you might have to blur something because there might be a little bit of confidentiality, depending on whether your sites are on public or, or private land. As, or if you're working with species at risk, maybe think about it. But I think a map showing all the places you've worked, even if it's just to the city or the town, that goes a long way rather than being like, oh, I've worked from Godrich to Ottawa, which is still true. But here's a map illustrating it for you. That's awesome advice. Yeah, I think a picture's worth a thousand words. Definitely use that to your advantage if you can and when you can. <laughs> Absolutely. I've never once thought of including a map with an application or portfolio, to be honest. So I think I might actually coach you that moving forward from this. Yeah, I honestly recommend it. I like to try this out with like different friends and things. And I usually we talk about it and it's got a pretty good hit rate. I think it helps you stand out. Awesome. One burning question that I want to know the answer to. What is your favorite field snack? Oh, okay. Uh, it depends. Okay. Like when I'm actually in the field, it's a granola bar. It's the crumbliest one. It's the Nature Valley <laughs> peanut butter one, but they don't have palm oil in them. So that's kind of a big thing for me. Get the granola bars without the palm oil. But post field work, it's got to be an ice cap. Like every single time, Ooh. if it's been a hot day, I know they're not good for you, but I crave them and it's a nice cap for me. <laughs> nice. Honestly, that's awesome. There is nothing like a cold ice cap after a really long, hot day in the field. Between your time doing your master's and also obviously being our chair for ELB, what's an example of positive change you're hoping to create? Big, small, long-lasting, current? What's some good you're hoping to put out in the world? Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me is going back and talking about how I didn't know what opportunities were out there. And so I really want to be able to use science communication to show people that you can get involved, that change, positive change can happen. I mean, that was the impetus for, for this whole podcast was like, hey, let's show people, let's show what other people are doing and be on a fly on a wall for like a coffee chat. And there's a great way to learn about all the different ways you can get involved. And I hope to keep going forward with that science communication to show people that it's not all bad news. We just need to do something about it. And I think talking about how we can bring biodiversity into our cities and cohabitate. Like we have a thousand stormwater ponds across Southern Ontario. That's potentially a thousand opportunities for us to do better and to bring wetland birds into our cities to give them a place to stay or at least a good habitat for them to breed and thrive and hopefully keep their populations at a sustainable level. So I think it that's what I want. I just want to create. A, is that is that too ambitious? I just want everybody to know that positive change is possible, and that we can do this. Nope, I love that. That is not too ambitious. Be capable. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm glad. You know, it's that imposter syndrome. But as long as you're working on your piece and you use your strengths and what you love doing, and 
you let other people worry about their piece, I really think that we can all come together and really start making positive change. 100%, especially when they see you're passionate about like something maybe maybe a lot of people haven't considered stormwater drainages and management before as a conservation tool. And then they see your passion and everything else. And next thing you know, you have 10, 20, 50 people all asking the same questions. Yeah. And through my work, I've been able to partner with the municipality, the conservation authority. We have the National Capital Commission here in Ottawa, which manages their green belt. And I'm working with the Environment and Climate Change Canada and Carleton. So like, I feel like that's a lot of people that are going to learn about stormwater management ponds without me even having to try to tell people about this. And then hopefully we can use that partnership to magnify the story. That's amazing. I'm so excited to hear where your work's going. Yeah. Definitely going to have to touch base in six months whenever you've defended your thesis and we'll do a follow-up episode. And I would be happy to do that. Just to come <laughs> on and tell you all about stormwater management ponds, the good, the bad, the ugly. Awesome. I learned a lot about your master's. I'm very excited, like extremely yeah, excited <laughs> to learn more. Thank <laughs> you. Is there anything that you want to say about your experience being on the Emerging Leaders for Biodiversity board? Being on the Emerging Leaders for Biodiversity board was definitely more of a transformative experience than I was expecting. I didn't really know what I was getting myself into when I went to the first my first AGM. And I thought, honestly, that this was like a Facebook job board and it was for people who didn't have a job. I didn't realize that what could be done with this platform. And I've met so many great people. I feel like I've learned so much more about how the industry in Ontario and across Canada like works as a whole. And then on top of that, if I hadn't been an ELB and started this podcast, I don't know if I'd be back doing my master's, right? Like I, I might've stayed in consulting for the rest of my career. So it's one of those things that looking back, you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But looking forward, no idea where it was going to go, but it's been a hell of a ride. And I've grown so much as a professional and as a person being part of ELB. That's awesome. Yeah. I think both Alex and I can relate to that answer. I know that I've grown so much since being on the board with ELB as well. No, well, did you ever think you'd be a podcast host? No, I did not. Absolutely not. <laughs> but hey, you've done your first episode and yeah. it's official. Stamp it. Thank you so much for tuning in to Emerging Leaders for Biodiversity. How do I do this? An environmental career podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media at our website using the handle EL number four biodiversity to get the latest news on upcoming events and other exciting opportunities. We can't wait for you to tune in to our next episode.